From the Diocese of Springfield in Illinois, this is Dive Deep, where we dive deep into our Catholic faith. I'm Andrew Hansen, along with Amber Servany and Father Chris House. He's a canonist, rector of the cathedral, our chancellor, special guest in studio, Father Michael Friedel. But I got some other parochial vicar. That's a that's a really cool name, by the way, at the cathedral. I hope to keep it for a long time. <laughs> Chaplain at SHG, uh, also an assistant vocations director. The one thing I do love about the Catholic Church is our, the, the names we have or the titles we have are just awesome. Like you're not just associate pastor or... Which is not a real title. It's parochial vicar. Like I, I think vicar general, like I think vicar general sounds like... That sounds better than a bishop. Like if I'm a, like vicar general, sounds like I'm going to war. Like I'm in, like that's that's like an awesome title to me. You guys have any thoughts on any of that? Or am I just out on my own? Usually, it sounds awesome to anybody, to everybody that doesn't have the title. So, <laughs> talk to Monsignor Heffler; he may tell you something different. So, all right. So, we're doing ten things non-Catholics will question Catholics about. We're going to split this into two episodes. We're going to do five, uh, five topics this podcast: uh, purgatory, baptizing infants, Eucharist. Uh, confession and papal infallibility. So if you have a lot of non-Catholics who are questioning you on these topics, this is a way for you to defend the faith. Uh, We're going to talk about biblical scripture, uh, of course, oral tradition, and really explain why the church teaches the way it does to counter all the arguments uh, from our non-Catholic friends. Amber and I will kind of play the roles of non-Catholics, so we will start with number one. Number one. Purgatory. So I non, a lot of non-Catholics will say, I don't see purgatory in the Bible. Uh, they're going to point to Hebrews 10, 17. They say, and their sins and inequities will I remember no more. I will remember no more, Father House. I will not remember those sins. Tell me, tell me why I'm wrong. Well, <laughs> we're looking at the scriptures. The challenge is some things are explicit, some things are implicit. So that's one of the things, too, with looking at the scriptures. Another problem, too, is because we're, where we're going to first start out is is that you're not going to find it in a quote-unquote Protestant version of the Bible because we go to the second book of Maccabees, which was taken out by the Reformers. So what they call the Apocrypha, which what we call the Deuterocanonical books, so seven books that were removed from the Old Testament. So, Father Field, correct me at any point if I'm wrong on any of this because you are <laughs> more learned never. on this. So. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> this isn't the cathedral, but you'll have to, we have to go back there, though. So... Um, so in, in, in Maccabees, you have Judas Maccabees who after a battle finds that some of his own soldiers who are dead were wearing talismans, which is against the, the, the divine law. It's idolatry. So out of concern for their own salvation, so one right there you see uh, Judas believes in an afterlife. So he take us a, takes up a collection from those who are alive and they make an offering in the temple, and that and that offering is given with with the um, expectation of prayers for these men for the sins that they died with on their soul. So, right there, before Christ, in in the Old Testament, we have this what we say is a foundational text, or it points us to this notion of praying for those who are dead, who may have died within an attachment to sin, or we might say more, or some, any type of temporal punishment on their soul. So the importance of prayer for them so that they may be purified by the grace of God and then go on to a greater life. But John 3.36 says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, Father Friedel. Right, which is absolutely true. We believe that you know it's fundamental to believe in Jesus Christ. Actually, that's what the author of the letter to the Hebrews is talking about when he quotes, um, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. He's speaking of the Old Testament practice of offering sacrifice. And he says it's, it's 
essentially no longer necessary to offer animal sacrifice in the temple because we have a priest who offered a sacrifice once and for all for all of us. The problem and where the, the Catholic belief in purgatory comes is, you know, you look at quote, uh, texts like Revelations twenty one twenty seven, which says that nothing unclean shall enter into heaven. So we, we have to be purified before we experience uh, God and all of his majesty. And that purification, you know, if, if, if we believe that our sins, you know, we're not quite perfect on this side of eternity, then a merciful God allows us an opportunity to be purified instead of saying, well, you weren't completely perfect, therefore I banish you uh, to everlasting fires. No, he says, I, I, I give you this place where you can be purified, where you can be refined, and where you can come into my presence uh, in, in a beautiful way. Um, so, so the Catholic doctrine on purgatory is actually, uh, it's sort of an extension of our belief in a merciful God. Yeah, I've always um, I've always used the analogy. Maybe this is very childish, but you you throw a baseball and you break your neighbor's window. You ask for forgiveness, the neighbor forgives you, but there's still a price to be paid. You still have to pay for that window. Likewise, with sin, God forgives your sin, but you still there is still a price to be paid for that sin. And purgatory is that place to make reparations, to be purged. Um, Talk a little bit more, uh, both of you, about about that mercy, because I, I think a lot of non-Catholics they still they still aren't convinced purgatory is merciful. They don't they don't perceive it as merciful. It uh, sounds like a horrible place, boy. You're 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 still not with God. Uh, you're longing. There's maybe cold, you know, visions have said it's cold. It's it, it sounds kind of like a miserable place, according to many of our saints who've seen visions. That doesn't sound like a merciful God to me. Well, the cha- challenge on that is those are number one. Those are private revelations, so that's not doctrinally uh, mandated belief. Either so, e- Okay, either way, throw right. those aside. They'll still say it doesn't sound but, merciful. But also, too, it depends on what our understanding of purgatory is. Is it a place or is it more of a process? Is it about purgation, about purification? It makes sense. The whole reason why we've talked about this before on, a, on another podcast, the whole, why when the devil rebelled against God, when Lucifer said, I will not serve, when he committed, when his pride took him to a, a sinful place, we like to have visions of a war in heaven. The scriptures even talk about that in imagery. But the reality is this. There was not a struggle. There can be no sin in heaven. Lucifer was immediately cast out from the presence of God. So if sin cannot be in heaven, God wants us there. But anything that's hanging on, it's got to be purged. It's got to be wiped away. It's got to be purified. That's what purgatory is. It's getting us ready to enter the divine presence. And that just, I mean, that, so that's, I mean, it's, it's logical for anybody who dies so that satisfaction can be made. So it's not that God wants us to suffer. And in fact, part of that, uh, of that redemptive suffering that you might say is because that longing to enter the divine presence. Because the, the sorrow of purgatory is the souls there know what they're missing out on. And they've seen they, the face of God. Th- that God is, yeah, not fully, not the full beatific vision like being in heaven, but they know they have a far greater knowledge than we do here on earth of what's waiting for them. And they know that that is, see, purgatory, it's only one way out. There's no backtracking. That's the good news about purgatory. But they just, they want to get out of there because they know there's no question about the great things that are waiting for them. And so that longing, that desire, and that that grief, in essence, of being denied that, but only temporarily. 
just because that's that attachment to sin, that attachment to things that are other than God, that are taking the place of God, that's that's gotten rid of, that's purged. Yeah, there's no doubt that sin is is an ugly thing, right? It's not something that that we can be proud of. It's sort of our fallen humanity. And so um, to say that we can arrive at heaven without, um, in some sense, you know, partaking in that that sort of suffering of of our sinfulness. I think it 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 seems a bit proud to me. And so again, purgatory it's 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 a merciful place because unlike those who are damned to to hell, unlike those who uh, suffer for eternity, purgatory, like Father House said, it's there's only one way out, and that is to heaven. So the one thing that it that those souls have is true hope. Um, in in God's mercy, true hope that that they will one day see uh, the beatific vision. So um, I have people who come to me sometimes and ask, you know, what's purgatory going to be like? And I always tell them, well, I don't know. I haven't been there yet. Um, well, hopefully, yeah. hopefully you'll avoid it, actually. <laughs> yeah, I would love yourself to. short already. <laughs> um, but I think, I think to say, you know, the one thing that those souls are not without is hope. And uh, and we need to pray for them. That's our responsibility as uh, as Catholics here on that are still living to offer our prayers for them. All right, what's next? Number two, baptizing infants. Um, okay, so big argument. Of course, it's we don't we don't see baptizing infants in the Bible. That's of course a lot of lines from non-Catholics in general is just, Hey, I don't see this in the Bible, but um, you know, I've talked to a couple people, they point out. So Mark 16, 16 says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Babies can't believe. They don't know how to believe. They don't even know who Jesus is. And if they don't believe they can't be saved. Um, so what's the counter argument? Why, why do Catholics baptize infants then? Yeah. The question is, what does that belief look like? Right. And, um, the, the gift that we offer to children in baptism is is really the the gift of those seeds of faith right and that's parents uh, approach the the font of baptism approach the church and offer that gift of faith on behalf of of their child it's it's really an inclusion in the divine life that uh, that they believe in the graces that come from baptism they believe in the beauty of that moment in the gift of divine life that is given to that soul and so uh, that's something they don't want to hold back <laughs> from their child. So they make that act of faith on behalf of their child. And um, we see that the that baptism then, you know, the divine life sort of takes hold in that moment. Um, but it, it's still, there's a, a subjective element there, right? There's the reality that um, when you um, grow up, when you, when you sort of come to full knowledge, full belief that those graces, they deepen, they broaden. Um, and that's, that's as well why we look to the sacrament of confirmation, but. And, and, and but father house. Okay. So uh, what about uh, Ezekiel 1820 that says the son shall not be charged with the guilt of his father at one non-Catholic say uh, original sin doesn't exist. And Ezekiel 1820 seems to me makes it clear that the original sin isn't there because the son shouldn't be guilty of this this uh, the father's sin. Okay, well we don't agree with that just uh, as a, as a point, but also too, I mean, what is baptism? Baptism is more than just the removal of original sin. It's incorporation into the body of Christ, into the mystical body of Christ, being made an heir to the kingdom. So, one thing that all Christians should agree on is that heaven is only possible because of Jesus Christ. Even for those who are not Christian, 
who that we still have the hope of salvation for. It's only because of Christ, because of his merits, the satisfaction uh, won for him on the cross or won for us by him on the cross, that any of us have the hope of everlasting life. So for us who do believe in Christ, who do call ourselves Christians, baptism unites us with him not just by let me go a step further. It's not just by our profession of faith that we are united with him. Through baptism, he unites himself to us. That's where we enter into that covenant. All throughout the Old Testament, we hear about covenant. And even though on the human side of that equation, it gets broken time and time again, God does not break his covenant. God does not go back on his promises. So that's what's so important about baptism is that not just that we are making a profession of faith, not just that we are choosing Christ, choosing God, but that God is saying, you are mine, and nothing can change that. That is, that is irrevocable. Now we have the responsibility to live in that relationship throughout our lives. But it's not just about the washing away of original sin. That is very important. But it's also that we are joined to Christ, and Christ freely joins himself to us. Um, in John 3, 3, 6, though, it says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. I mean, that says to me, it could say to me that I just have to believe, take out Everything. I believe, and Jesus is merciful, and ta-da. That's all true, but <laughs> it's one thing to— but, but how much do you really believe something if you don't act on that belief? And baptism is a simple reality. It is the, it is the washing away of sin. It is the joining the mystical body of Christ. It is the pouring of water over the head. So I, and it I, doesn't cost you anything, except, in essence, I mean, it, it does have a spiritual cost— but what it yields is everlasting life. I had one non-Catholics, uh, again, question on, well, babies can't believe. I, I, I pointed to the fact that when the apostles went out, they went to households. They, you know, Jesus said, go out and, and baptize the nations, and they'd go into households. So clearly, you know, we can make, we can infer then if they're going to households, they're most likely baptizing children who would fall under the, uh, not, I don't have the capability of believing category, if you want to put it. Is, well, when Jesus sends the apostles out at the end of Matthew's gospel, he says, go out and proclaim the gospel and baptize all the nations in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, go out and baptize all adults. He just says, go out and baptize. He doesn't say baptize, he doesn't say baptize only believers, too. Well, he, yeah, he doesn't put a caveat on there. He says, go out and baptize. I mean, I look at this with parents. You have to educate, or you have to educate your children one way or another. You have to clothe them and feed them. If not, the state will want to have a talk with you. Why do you not want to trust in the Lord's promise and pledge of everlasting life? If you truly want what is best for your child, the best thing you can want is heaven. So that's a reminder if you are going to have a child, have the child baptized really kind of as soon as possible. Uh, absolutely. That's the church, the whole thing. Children are supposed to be born within a short time after their birth. I mean, we're happy to baptize them anytime, but the sooner the better. All right, what's next? Number three. The Eucharist. All right, so non-Catholics will say, well, this seems, this seems far-fetched here, Catholics. You're telling me that bread and wine become physical flesh, physical blood? Doesn't not, look like it. We're not telling you. Jesus is telling you <laughs> if you read the scriptures. Sure doesn't look like it. This seems completely, uh, well, break this down for me. This doesn't seem, and and I've some might point out then if that's what you believe, it sounds like cannibalism because if you're eating flesh, drinking blood, that sounds a little weird. All right. What's the answer? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, Jesus says repeatedly in John 6, right, this is my flesh, this is my blood. And unless you eat my flesh, and the 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 verb there, eat, it's it's to gnaw, right? It's, so it's it's a very visceral uh, reality that Jesus is pointing to. But he says, unless unless you you know, chew on my flesh, then you won't, will not have life within you. Right. So, um, it's really Christ's words that we, we believe here. And, and the sort of, um, mystery of a lot of fundamental Christianity is there, you know, they're a very Bible based, uh, faith. Yeah. They believe that, you know, everything is, is sort of literally true in the scriptures, but they look at the texts of John six and, and I'm not sure how they justify thinking this is just, uh, Jesus speaking symbolically, because he does offer over over and over again, um, this this is my flesh, and then do this in remembrance of me. I mean, I think that part right there always um, kind of made me question a little bit. Like to do this in remembrance of me sounds like you just you're doing something to remember somebody, not necessarily sure. partaking. And yes. but that's also that's a flaw in language, though. You're right by understanding of it, but. If you look at in the Jewish understanding of when they would celebrate the Seder meal, the Passover meal, and even in our Eucharistic prayer, there's a part called the anamnesis. It's right after the consecration, after we, we do the mystery of faith, the moral acclamation. It's, you know, calling to mind the death your son endured for our salvation, that, that type of prayer. But anamnesis, it's a remembering, but it's a specific type of remembering. It's a remembering that actually makes the past a present reality. So that's what's key to it. Do this in memory of me in the sense of the Paschal sacrifice. Do this in remembrance of me, the anamnesis, that I may be made present for you again. What about what about the cannibalism angle? So so if you you're you're eating flesh, okay, you believe that's flesh. You're eating it. Boy, that that sounds like cannibalism to me. And what's what's the response to that? Well, it's it's the glorified Christ. It's the Christ who is risen from the dead, who is not bound by the laws of physics, space, and time as we are. It's the same Jesus Christ who was not recognizable to his disciples, the same Jesus Christ who walked through doors and appeared in places. So it's not the same flesh and blood historically that we are. It's not the historical Jesus. It's the risen. It's the glorified Jesus. Gotcha. You know, I think the Bible verse, you said, Father Friedel, unless you, you know, eat the flesh of man and drink his blood, you have no life in him. Correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't that when Jesus said that, that was kind of when he started his ministry and he's proclaiming this to, and then people started to walk away. Yeah. And I always think like, if here's a guy, he, he's, he's here to start his ministry and all these people are falling away. Don't you think he'd be like, Oh wait, guys, you're taking it the wrong way. And certainly if it was a symbol, it would, yeah. <laughs> that would have been a moment to say, you know, this is it. Let me teach you about poetic language. But if it's, you know, if, if the Lord really meant it, um, and if he meant it to the point that, he was willing to see people walk away from the truth. You know, it's it's difficult, but it is it is what he says it is. You know, and I, and I believe that. And wasn't wasn't there a point right after that he has a conversation with the apostles um, that kind of breaks it down to where I don't remember exactly. See, I'm, I'm not a biblical scholar. Right yeah, after yeah, they yeah. leave him, <laughs> yeah, no, after, after all the crowds leave, yeah, th- th- then the, he, the apostles say something to well, him. He turns to Peter, there he, all of them, and says, "Will you leave too?" And Peter says, "Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life." There you go. All right, what's next? Number four, confession. All right, so non-Catholics will say only Jesus has the power to forgive sins, and. Why do you have to go to a priest to do that? Why can't I just 
you know, even if it's, even if you want to do it in a really, really solemn way, I'm going to go to my, my local church. I'm going to sit there. I'm going to contemplate. I'm going to tell Jesus, these are my sins in my head and I'm going to seek your forgiveness. I know you forgive my sins because that's what you said. And I'm good. What's wrong with that? I think it goes back to the sacramental reality of the church as, you know, body, soul unities. We, we need sort of tangible um, remembrances, right? Things, things that sort of um, affect for us um, real grace. And so there's something so much more powerful in my experience of the sacrament going to confession uh, often enough myself. Uh, there's something to hearing someone say you're forgiven, you know, really knowing that you are forgiven because you've gone to someone who has conformed their lives to Christ, who, who, in, in that moment represents Christ himself and, and being able to hear those words, you know, I absolve you from your sins. There's, there's something it's, again, it's sort of at the, the heart of the reality of sacraments in the church. And in that, in that non-Catholic objection, there's a lot of truth in that, but what underlines it is a misunderstanding. Yes. It is only Jesus Christ to forgive sins. A priest does not forgive sins. I do not forgive sins. Father Friel does not forgive sins. It is Jesus Christ. By virtue of our ordination, by our ordination as priests, we sit in the place of the person of Christ, the head. And in those sacramental celebrations, whereas at, at the Mass or when we are celebrating the sacrament of reconciliation, in that moment when the penitent encounters the confessor, they're encountering Jesus Christ in the confessor. The confessor is the vessel, is the medium by which Christ is acting for the salvation of that soul who is coming to confess their sins. So it is the priest, or it's Jesus Christ acting through the priest. When I say those prayers, I absolve you from your sins, it is Jesus Christ, the great high priest, who is speaking through me, who is acting through me, who is absolving those sins. I don't do it on my own authority or because of what it's all because of Christ and what the grace he has given me, sinner though I am, and the fact that he is present and he is acting in and through me. Biblical. What, where's the biblical reference for? Uh, I have to go to a priest to confess my sins. Yeah. So I was just going to say that's a, the what Father House was speaking of is a, it's a very biblical reality in um, the 16th chapter of Matthew when when Jesus gives uh, Peter the the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He says, "I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." So in that sense, he gave to his apostles the ability. To, to bind and loose, the ability to forgive sins. Um, if you look at um, Jesus sending out the apostles in Matthew's gospel, it's after Matthew has manifest him, uh, Matthew's Jesus has manifest himself as the great healer, right? Not only the one who has power uh, by his words, but the one who can calm storms, the one who can heal, the one who can drive out demons by his words. Jesus is this one who has divine authority, through his miracle working. He then says to the apostles, he turns to them and says, go out to all the lost sheep of Israel. Um, and I want you to heal them. I want you to exercise demons. I want you to take what I have. He, he imparts that divine authority onto them. And then he sends them out so that, so that his life might be given to Israel uh, through the apostles. And so it's a reality that's that's still at work in the church. The the divine authority of Jesus Christ, but given to men. I want to ask you both uh, while we're on this topic, um, 
a lot of a lot of, a lot of times I ask priests, "What's your favorite sacrament to administer?" And they say it's confession, which which is kind of surprising. You think, obviously, Eucharist. Maybe you think marriage or baptism because those are those are fun, happy moments. But I, I hear confession. Uh, what's it like? You guys are obviously on the other side. Um, what's it like hearing someone's confession? It's not so. I guess it's it's not so much. It's not the hearing of the actual confession. But it's just it's and I mean sometimes you have people who are you have people many of them who are regular penitents, and who you know they're coming in, they're striving to live life grace. But it's it's those moments when you know someone comes in, and it's been a couple years or it's been ten years or it's been thirty or forty years, and sometimes they're carrying with them a very very heavy cross that uh, horribly they thought that that excluded them from the love and mercy of God. But then by God's grace knocking at the door of their lives, at the door of their hearts, they were moved to come into that moment to make that encounter. And then you're the instrument by which Christ sets them free. And that's a very privileged place. Mm-hmm. That's uh it, it really it's it's indescribable. Because I mean there there and that's the whole and so and that's the the confessor is is blessed as much as the penitent for being able to be a part of that, um, because there there are times when you truly do know that Christ is there because He's setting them free, and just some it's just it's yeah it's really it's there's times it's just it's indescribable. I remember um, when I was first in seminary, we have these uh, they call them confession practica, and so it's really just a small group of people. There are three other seminarians sitting there, and there's a priest who's who's pretending to be a penitent. Um, not that priests don't also have to be penitents, but he's, he's got sort of a list of, of um, a, a scenario, right. Of someone who's coming to confession and he sort of um, goes through the list and you as a seminarian have to pretend to, you know, hear that confession to give him a little bit of, of counseling and then to, to say the words of absolution, which of course don't, uh, there aren't, they aren't effective yet because you're not ordained. <laughs> but I remember sitting there uh, in that, confession practica. And I was just like, I don't know as a priest what to say, you know, there, there certainly there's going to be a moment when somebody walks in and I, I, I won't know what to do. Um, but I remember in praying about that, that, that the Lord really just sort of put on my heart, you know, the one thing you never have to question is if, if someone is truly sorry, um, that I want to extend my mercy to them. Right. So so that's sort of the approach that when I'm hearing people's sins, sins are so uncreative. (laughs) There's nothing original about them. You hear the same things over and over and over again. Um, So it's not it's not like, you know, your confession has to inspire me in any way. It's not inspiring. It's sin. Um, But to be able to impart that mercy is really a privileged moment because grace, grace is creative. And a reminder for all of us to go to confession. Absolutely. What's next? Number five. All right, papal infallibility. All right, so of course I'll throw out the line. They'll say, well, I don't see this in the Bible anywhere. Um, Colossians 1.18 says Jesus is the head of the church, not the Pope. Quote, he, God, is the head of the body of the church. That to me sounds, it's God is the head. We should only turn to God, not a human being who has flaws, who can say flaws, do flaws. It should be in God. Papal infallibility sounds made up, invented. Well, they're they're right in that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Um, we don't dispute that. 
Uh, we don't dispute that in any way. We call the Pope the Vicar of Christ, which means from Latin, right, the voice of Christ. You probably know Latin better than I do. but Unfortunately, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, right, he's the voice of Christ. So the Pope is not the one who usurps Jesus' power, um, who claims to be the head of of the church. He's the one who speaks the voice of Christ, right? He's the one, um, and that's that's a biblical mandate as well. We go back to the same thing that we, the same sort of utterance um, as what we were talking about in confession, that that statement of Jesus to Peter, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And so- Keys being a symbol of authority. Right, exactly. And so he gave that to Peter. You know, he didn't he didn't look at, at all of them and say, you know, y- y'all can share, um, you know, there, there was a sharing in that ministry. There was, but there, there's a privilege that you see, um, in Jesus's interactions with Peter. And, um, and that was a reality that was lived out in the early life of the church. When there were disputes, um, they went to Peter, you know, and, and Peter wasn't, um, uninformed, you know, he, he wasn't acting in a vacuum. He still had, uh, all of the other apostles, um, to, to help him, to guide him, um, in his ministry, but as well that, um, as Peter goes to Rome, you see in the early life of the church that that the bishops um, throughout um, the Christian world, they, they begin to look to uh, the, the successor of Peter as the one who sort of has this authority that's been passed down because of, of the primacy of, of Peter's faith and, and of his ministry. I think some people always misunderstand what papal infallibility is. Father House explained that, and it's very, it's very narrow. It's not just, you know, hey, he thinks the Cubs are going to win this weekend. No, it's a very narrowly defined thing. Right, and and go back to the the annals of this podcast. You can find one on papal infallibility, I believe. Right. So, But basically, papal infallibility only applies to matters of faith and morals. So the office of Pope, of the Vicar of Christ, the Bishop of Rome, he serves as a sign of visible unity of the church, but also as an instrument that safeguards the faith. So the whole reason why uh, a dogma, which is the highest of all teachings, would be defined is for the safeguarding of the faith, to, to save the faith or the faithful from errors. Now, how many times has papal infallibility been used? You remember? Remember from our earlier podcast? Well, once. Once. For the assumption of Mary. Right. Well, actually, well, it was uh, actually his Immaculate Conception. So was that in the, it was nineteen fifties? Wasn't that the Assumption? I thought the Assumption we declared Mary was assumed body and soul. It was declared a dogma. It was not declared ex. It, okay. It's an infallible statement, but it wasn't declared ex cat. So the, when we talk about infallibility, there's levels of infallibility. So you got ex cathedra statements where the Pope speaks ex cathedra. He did that. Blessed Pope Pius the Ninth. In 1854, I believe, with the document or the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, where he says definitively declared that Mary was conceived without original sin. Pope Pius XII, the Venerable Pius XII, declared in 1950 the dogma of the Assumption of Mary, body and soul into heaven, having already having cons- having consulted the College of Bishops. So, as Father Friedel was talking about how Peter wasn't in a vacuum, he had the other apostles around him. So, the bishops are the successors of all the apostles. So the Pope, in consultation with the College of Bishops, defines the dogma of the Assumption, did not declare it ex cathedra, but still is infallible because it's taught in a unified way by 
both the Roman Pontiff and the College of Bishops. So that is also an infallible teaching, although not declared ex cathedra. So a lot of times as Catholics, we get these things crisscrossed. So there's only one inf- there's only one ex cathedra teaching, but there are many, many infallible teachings. So what if, um, God forbid, we have a rogue pope who 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 starts to you know if this uh, starts to say things that are, are against dogma or declaring things. Uh, that you, I mean, well, that's when we go to our friend, the code of canon law. <laughs> so, so really quick, your so, friend and ours. Yeah. So, so non-Catholics <laughs> will say, wait a minute, you have Pope X up there. He's, he's, he said this, that he, he went X, X cathedra and he, he declared that I thought he was infallible. Shouldn't you guys believe that? Oh, well, the Pope commits heresy. He's deprived of his office. That's in the code of canon law. So there we go. Now, how we actually do that. I can't tell you because we've not had to do that. Thanks be to God, at least in any modern era. So, uh. Yeah, if the if the uh, if the papal chair goes off the rails, there is a mechanism, which the Holy Spirit will reveal to us. I have no doubt. But the code does say, the law of the church is you know you're deprived of the office if if you go against the intent of the office, you're deprived of the office. So that God always protects the church from error. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's through a lengthier process, through councils, through trial and error. But in the end of the day. God is always with the church. The Holy Spirit is guiding her. Christ is protecting her, and God will protect her from error. We'll leave it right there. So uh, our next podcast, we're going to explore the next five topics regarding uh, what non-Catholics may question Catholics on. We're going to talk about praying and worshiping saints and Mary, uh, good works versus faith alone, the sacraments, the Bible alone, otherwise known as sola scriptura, and indulgences. So we'll see you next time here on Dive Deep.